Well, thanks again, Joe and team, for serving us so well yet again this afternoon. It's that time that we come to the preaching of God's word, and we're going to return to our study of the gospel of John. And we find ourselves in John 14, verses 25 to 31. And as we often do, I want to begin by reading this portion of scripture. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, our Lord is speaking to his disciples and he says this, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you again. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. I think it would be fair to say that peace is a precious commodity. All of us long and crave for peace. And in a fallen world where trial and tribulation are inevitable, we need a particular kind of peace, peace that's transcendent, peace that's rooted and grounded in truth, peace that endures even life's greatest difficulties. And that peace can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives it to all those who are his. But to experience that peace, you must be able to identify what it is. And to identify it, it must be first properly defined. Because only then will you even know what the peace of Christ is. To, be, to, to lay a hold of it. And the danger is this. That we would be found pursuing the peace of the world. A peace that's merely circumstantial and temporary that's entirely dependent on the absence of what troubles us. That's what the world seeks. And it's devoid of the truth. The world is ignorant to reality as it really is. And it can't have access to the peace the Lord promises here. We need real and lasting peace, peace that's bathed in the truth and that overcomes the world and its tribulation. We find ourselves in the midst of our Lord's farewell address, much of what constitutes his final words to his disciples. And the overarching theme of this section is that of comfort. Jesus is seeking to console his disciples. And he's seeking to console them because their world has just been rocked. Not only did they just find out there's a traitor in their ranks who's going to betray Jesus, Jesus has just announced his impending departure. 
And you get a sense of the, the pathos of this in the exchange between Peter and Jesus. It comes out in John 30, 13, 36 and following, where Peter asks, Lord, why are you, where are you going? To which our Lord replies, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And then Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? The notion of not being with Jesus was agonizing. And so Jesus launches into promise after promise to comfort his disciples. He announces to them that they have a dwelling place reserved for them in heaven, in the Father's house. And that though he was leaving them, he would come again to them and receive them to himself. That they would be with him eternally, never to be separated again. He announces that they know the way. That he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through him. He announces that he is in the Father and the Father in him and that to see him is to see the Father. He tells them that due to his departure, they too would do the works that he did and even greater works than these they would do. He told them they would be furnished with all the resources of heaven. That whatever they would ask of him in his name, he would do. He tells them of the coming of the Holy Spirit, whereby he would permanently indwell them. He announces that they would see him after his resurrection, prior to his ascension into heaven, and that because he lived, they too would live. And he announces that both he and the Father would come to them and make their abode with them, whereby the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would indwell them. And really, as you work through this portion of scripture, the promises just keep on coming. In our text here, we have two more promises that are made. Promises that rightly understood impart peace in the midst of tribulation. Peace that should have comforted their hearts, even as they were looking at all that was before them with so much uncertainty. In fact, as a whole, this passage provides reasons to rejoice. Reasons to rejoice in spite of life's troubles. And in that, it becomes really instructive for us because it teaches us about the nature of real peace and comfort, that we would understand what it is to have peace in the midst of difficulty. And so our aim today is to calibrate our hearts, to tune our hearts to what it is that actually makes for peace real, objective, and even experiential peace. And so we're going to see four reasons to rejoice. Four reasons to rejoice, and they all revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is this, the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. This comes out in verse 25 and following. It says there, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Even that implicitly anticipates the impending departure of Jesus. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus had been their source of truth throughout his earthly ministry. And now that he was leaving, he wouldn't leave them without a teacher. 
In fact, back in verse 16, he's already said, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. The spirit would come and would be the one who would take up the baton of the teaching ministry of Jesus and would effectively represent Christ to them as the emissary of Christ, the representative of Christ and would function as their teacher in the absence of the Lord. This is the second of five passages that refer to the Spirit in this farewell. And it's the only time the Spirit is referred to as the Holy Spirit. That he's holy indicates that he is God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. That he is holy indicates that he is perfect in his morality, his moral perfection, and that he's transcendent as Holy God, being co-equally God with the Father and the Son. And here, he is sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. Which is to say, the Holy Spirit represents the very character and likeness of Jesus. And that's why our Lord will later say that the Spirit won't speak on his own initiative, that whatever he hears, he will speak and he will glorify Jesus, taking what is his and disclosing it to the disciples. And this was critical. In the the fog of the, the troubled hearts of the disciples, there were two fundamental problems. First was one of recollection. With Jesus leaving, how would they recall everything that he had said to them? They would do so by means of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit came, he would call to their remembrance all that Jesus had taught them. The second difficulty was one of comprehension. The disciples lacked understanding. So even if they could recall what the Lord had taught them, they didn't comprehend it. There were gaps in their understanding, in their knowledge. And so not only would the Spirit call it to their remembrance, He would impart understanding, granting them the ability to grasp the things that Jesus had said to them during their earthly ministry. And I don't want you to miss this. This isn't primarily a promise that's made to you and I. This is a promise made to the 11. And it finds its fulfillment primarily in the record of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it doesn't stop there because as this discourse develops, Jesus alludes to other teaching that he had for them that they were not yet ready to bear. And you see this in John 16, verse 12 and following. Look at it. There, our Lord says to them, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So not only would the spirit teach and call to their attention all that Jesus had taught them, he would also reveal to them that which they couldn't yet bear to hear. And the realization of that is in what? The rest of the New Testament, 
as the revelation of Christ is unpacked in the epistles and climaxing in the book of Revelation, a promise that anticipates the completion of God's revealed word in the scriptures. And that means this, that though this promise isn't primarily made to us, it most definitely has immense blessing and benefit for us. Since in the fulfillment of the promise made here, we have the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, supremely sufficient word of God that we have in our hands to read and to to immerse ourselves in and to hide away in our hearts. You say, but James, though we have the word of God, don't we too need a teacher? Yes, indeed. And we have one, a promise made to us. In John's first epistle, which we looked at last time, that there's an anointing, the Holy Spirit, that we have from the Holy One, and that his anointing teaches us all things necessary for salvation and beyond, and that he does so through divine illumination. As the Spirit of God testifies to the truth of God in our study of the Scriptures, granting us knowledge and understanding, And so whereas the disciples received the promise of divine inspiration in the the, the record of the the scriptures, we received the promise of divine illumination, whereby the Spirit would take the word of God revealed in the text of scripture and would impart to us understanding as we study it. And really, when you put that down on paper, this is reason to rejoice. You have access to the revelation of God. You have the very mind of God and mind of Christ. You have access to the one in whom are stored all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge that's revealed in the word of God. And you've been given the spirit of God. And the spirit of God gives you the ability to understand that revelation. As he again illuminates that truth to your mind and heart. And so you have access to reality as it really is. And even in the midst of life's greatest difficulties, you understand the sovereign providence of God. And even understand the sovereign purposes of God. The purpose of trials for strengthening your faith. That momentary light affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory. That this is not your home, that your citizenship is in heaven. And that through trial and tribulation, you actually come to know Christ more deeply and intimately. Both the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Is that not reason to rejoice? There's just one thing. The degree to which you pursue the truth bears a direct correlation to the degree to which you possess the truth. And the degree to which you possess the truth bears a direct correlation to the degree to which you profit from the truth. And so this is no mere passive endeavor. This demands studious due diligence as we would take the word of God and digest it and ingest it, immersing ourselves in the very truth of Scripture praying the Spirit of God would open our eyes to behold wonderful things as we do so. And so access to the Word of God along with 
having the spirit of Christ demands that we be active in our study of scripture. So there's your first reason to rejoice. You have the word of God and the spirit of Christ. And that means that you can navigate anything the world throws at you with a transcendent knowledge of the truth. Truth that will not just carry you through that season, but will even give it definition and purpose, strengthening you to persevere in the midst of it. The second reason to rejoice is this, the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. This comes out in verse 27. There our Lord says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So Jesus gives us his peace. But how are we to understand this? Is this peace the absence of all trial and tribulation? No. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, in the world you will have what? Tribulation. Is it merely a, a wishful kind of peace? Is Jesus just wishing a blessing of peace, hoping it would go well for us? No. That's the wisdom or the peace of the world. And Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give to you. So what is this peace? Well, let me give you four characteristics. Four characteristics of this peace to define it. So you can see it and lay hold of it by faith. One is objective. One is objective. It's peace with God. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is objective peace with God, whereby all of the hostility that was once there in our relationship with God is now taken out of the way. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It's to be counted as righteous in the courtroom of heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we, as you know, came into this world at enmity with God, hostile toward him. And so now that we have peace, this signals that all hostility has come to an end. God's wrath toward us has been satisfied. And so God's disposition toward us has gone from one of righteous wrath and indignation to one of covenant love and adoption. And it's an eternal reality. This is ours in Christ. But two, it isn't just objective, it's also subjective. It's subjective. Paul calls it the peace of God in Philippians 4, 7. It's experiential and able to endure and overcome even the most agonizing affliction. In fact, Paul calls it that which surpasses all comprehension and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so this is a supernatural peace transcending all human intellectual power. And it's supernatural because three, its source is divine. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. This is peace which comes to us directly from God the Son. It's of a heavenly origin. And four, it's rooted in transcendent truth. 
And so whereas the peace of the world is either purely circumstantial or is worse rooted in blissful ignorance, the peace that Jesus gives is tethered to the truth. Truth that speaks authoritatively to everything pertaining to life and godliness as well as to the life to come. You see, the world has no peace to offer. And and even when it wishes peace upon anyone, it's utterly incapable of providing it. Its best wishes are powerless, but it's not so with Jesus. What he gives, he provides. And so his peace is real peace. Being both objective and subjective, being of heavenly origin and being rooted in the truth. And so, next part of verse 27, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And that might seem somewhat strange. I mean, if Jesus is leaving his peace with us, and his peace is everything we just said it was, why would he even need to say this? And that leads us to a fifth characteristic of this piece. And it's this. It must be pursued. It must be applied. It must be appropriated. It's no different than the Spirit's work in illumination. It demands diligence on our behalf. And so Jesus exhorts the eleven to comfort their troubled hearts with this because the peace of Christ is the antidote to a troubled heart, but they have to lay hold of it. They have to lay hold of it by faith. Our Lord even says there, nor let it be fearful. That word fearful there is a word that means to lack courage and can also be rendered be cowardly. The only time the verb is used in the New Testament. And so with their worlds having been rocked, the disciples are experiencing cowardliness and Jesus exhorts them to stop. But instead to lay hold of the peace which he gives by faith. So how do you do that? I mean, our Lord is imparting his peace to us. It's his gift to us. And he's giving it to the disciples and they're in the midst of a troubled heart. And so how does one lay claim to this peace? Well, one, you need to know the truth. You need to know the truth. The truth about God, the truth about the gospel, the truth about trials, the truth about heaven, the truth about peace. You need to know the truth as it's revealed in the word of God. You need to know the truth. Two, you need to believe the truth. You need to believe the truth. It isn't enough to merely know the truth. You must believe it. The application of the truth to our lives is an act of faith. And so the same faith you exercise in the death and resurrection of Christ must be exercised with respect to peace and truth. The truth must be applied by faith. And so you need to believe the truth. Three, 
You need to obey the truth. You need to obey the truth. This comes out in John 15 and verse 11, but look at verse 10 with me for a moment. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says this, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. A heartfelt pattern of obedience yields joy and joy and peace are close cousins. And so you need to obey the truth. And four, you need to pray. You need to pray. What does the Apostle Paul say in Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer, rather, but in everything by prayer and supplication and critical with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is absolutely critical to laying hold of the peace of God. And so you need to pray. And by God's grace, as you do that, you will experience the very peace Jesus promises here to all of his disciples. Knowing the truth, believing the truth, obeying the truth, and making your requests made known to God. And so this piece is there, and, and the roadmap to lay hold of it is there before you. You have access to it, and that's reason to rejoice. In the midst of incredible difficulty, in the midst of great tribulation. This is yours. You just need to lay claim to it. And so first, we have the spirit of Christ. That is a reason to rejoice. Second, we have the peace of Christ. Another reason to rejoice. Third, we come to the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Now Jesus in this section has referred to three distinct comings. One following the resurrection prior to his ascension into heaven Another, by means of the sending of the Spirit, when the Father and the Son would come and make their abode with them. And another, when the church is caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, an event that is still yet future from our vantage point. And it's that third coming that's in view here since Jesus defines it as him going to the Father. And you'll note here that he calls their love into question saying, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Did they love him? Of course they did. But their love was deficient. It was self-centered and was preoccupied with what the departure of Jesus meant for them. 
a more selfless love would have been preoccupied with what the departure of Jesus meant for him. So what did it mean? A return to his rightful place in glory with the Father. And that's expressed in the last part of verse 28, where Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. A statement that must be understood in the context of the incarnation. Jesus isn't saying the Father is what we would say ontologically greater, greater with respect to his nature or his essence. That would contradict everything that's already been said. Like John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or John five seventeen, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working, making himself equal with God. Or John eight fifty eight, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am declaring that he's Yahweh. Or John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Or how about John 14, 9? He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. So Jesus isn't saying that as the Son, he's inferior to the Father. That would render his claim to deity utterly blasphemous. Instead, he's anticipating his return to glory. The very glory he had with the Father before the world was John 17, 5. You see, when the Son left his eternal dwelling in heaven with the Father to take upon himself human flesh, he willingly left the indescribable glories of heaven. And he subjected himself to all the limitations of what it means to be human, yet without sin. And in his obedience to the Father, he was on the cusp of suffering an absolutely horrific death. A death not only filled with Great human suffering, but one that would make him the object of the Father's wrath. And so in this moment, as the author and perfecter of faith, Jesus is anticipating the joy. The joy that would follow on the heels of enduring the cross, whereby he would despise the shame and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. What makes the Father greater isn't his nature or essence, it's his place and position in glory, a place that was rightfully the son's. And he would be ascending back into that place and position in glory where he would dwell with the father in unapproachable light. And so the the disciples should have been rejoicing. The son is going to return to his place in glory to his place of exaltation. And he would do so now, not merely as God the Son, but as the Son of Man. Now, did Jesus intend to shame them in their failure to appreciate the significance of his departure to the Father? No. He did so to tell them in advance what was about to take place. 
that when it did take place, they would be strengthened in their faith. And this comes out in verse 29. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. And so just for a moment, let's step back and consider what the exaltation of Christ means for us. It means that salvation is accomplished. And Jesus, as the grave conquering king, is now seated far above all rule and authority. The spirit has been poured out in accord with the new covenant and now permanently indwells his people. Through the spirit, we have union with Christ and have been joined to him in his death and resurrection. And we're being conformed into his image from one level of glory to the next. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And of a gloriously certain hope that we will one day be with him for all of eternity. Having been entirely set apart from sin. When our conformity to Christ will finally be complete. I would say that's reason to rejoice, no? That's putting it mildly. Again, no matter how difficult your plight is, no matter how difficult your circumstances, these are reasons to rejoice and reasons to rejoice in the midst of those circumstances whereby even if the circumstances don't change, you have what you need to endure them and to persevere in the midst of them and to do so with peace, real, lasting peace. And if that weren't enough, let me give you the fourth and final reason to rejoice. And it's this, the testimony of Christ, the testimony of Christ. Now the testimony is going to come out in verse 31, but look at verse 30. It says there, I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. Who's the ruler of the world? Satan. And he rules this fallen world system. And yet though he rules it, it's important to point out that he is confined by the parameters within which God sets out for him. He can only do what God permits in his sovereignty. But since Jesus is not of this world, Satan has no claim on him. And since Jesus is without sin, Satan can bring no charge against him. Even as Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus overcame every one of them. But Satan was indeed coming. And he was coming by means of Judas, the Jewish leaders, and the Roman cohort. And so why did Jesus say this? Because his death wasn't Satan's victory. It was Satan's defeat. And it testified to his love for the Father. Look at verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. What had the Father commanded him? Well, the Father had commanded everything. I mean, his whole earthly Life was a fulfillment of the commandment of the Father. But what was the high point of his obedience? What was the, the obedience 
above and beyond all obedience. It was his work on the cross where he laid down his life and then took it up again. And that is a command from the Father. In fact, our Lord refers to it in John 10, 18, when he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from the Father. And so, yes, Satan was coming and yes, Jesus would die, but it would be in fulfillment of the command of the Father. And even to the defeat of Satan. And that means this. That the obedience of Christ in the sufferings of the cross testifies to his love for the Father. And to prove to the world his love for the Father, he willingly suffered, bled, and died. You see, we don't typically think of the cross that way. We think of the cross as reflecting the Father's love for us. Or we think of the cross as reflecting Christ's love for us. But Jesus is pointing to the reality that here, the cross points to his love for the Father and testifies to the world that he loves him. Boldly and publicly, And this was, again, a testimony made to the world. Back in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, posed a question to our Lord. And and this, in a sense, answers that question. It says there, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? I mean, the disciples were anticipating this arrival of the, the kingdom promised in the Old Testament that would come with great power and glory. And Jesus was not talking as though that was going to come. He was talking about his departure and that tied to his death. And so Judas is puzzled. His comprehension is foggy. Well, Jesus answers the question here in that he testifies to the world of his love for the Father. Now, you might ask the question, well, has the world received that testimony? All those called out of the world have. Every single one of us belonged to the world at one time, did we not? And we were called out of the world to embrace the testimony of the Son, of his love for the Father. And so, yes, the the ones who have been called out of the world they have certainly embraced this testimony. Those who remain in the world deem it foolishness, folly. And so it raises the question, what's your response to the testimony of the son's love for the father? Is it sheer foolishness in your mind? Do you see in it nothing but a horrific death, a a tragedy, one that has no significance for anything? Or do you see in that work the testimony of the son's love for the father 
And that on that cross, he laid down his life for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name. To reject the son's testimony is to reject the one and only sacrifice for sin. To reject the testimony of the son's love for the father revealed in the cross of Christ, you are rejecting the only remedy for sin. And that would mean this, that if you would die today, you would die in your sin and enter into eternal judgment where you would have to bear up under the the righteous wrath and indignation of God for every violation of his law. That is an outcome that none should desire. Instead, receive the testimony of the Son. Receive what the cross says about the Son's love for the Father. Believe on Christ as the the, the one and only sacrifice for sin. Trust in his death and resurrection. And do so knowing that as you do that, you will be ushered into the objective peace that we talked about earlier, the peace that we have with God. Because you'll be declared justified from heaven, righteous in the court of heaven, and will have a a perfect record of righteousness, not your own, but the Lord's, counted to you. And so I would urge you this day to abandon the folly of deeming the cross of Christ foolishness and instead lay hold of Christ by faith and be reconciled to God through him. These are phenomenal reasons to rejoice. If you're in Christ, then you have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ himself, who is in you to take the word of God that's been revealed on the pages of scripture and to open that word up to you, to open your heart up to receive it and to understand what it, what it claims, what it teaches In addition, you've been given the peace of Christ, a peace that is objective and settled in heaven, peace with God, and also a peace that's subjective, whereby it is that which would transcend all human comprehension, rooted and grounded in the truth, being supernatural, being of divine origin. You have a share in the exaltation of Christ. And so everything that we've rehearsed in the the work of Christ and all that comes with it, being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that is yours. That is a reason to rejoice. And you have received the testimony of Christ. That in the cross of Christ, he has declared from the heavens, his love for the Father, whereby he is now seated at the Father's right hand, far above all rule and authority, and whereby he will return to establish a kingdom of righteousness, whereby righteousness will reign, and whereby all debts will be settled, and we will be in his presence to enjoy him for all of eternity. These are magnificent reasons to rejoice. And really, they're summed up in John 16, 33. Look at that for a minute. There, Jesus says to his disciples, at the end of his farewell, these things I have spoken to you, 
so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And if he's overcome the world and you are in him, then you will overcome the world as well. But maybe just one final word. Flip back to John 14 for a moment and just catch the final statement at the end of verse 31. A fitting way to end a sermon. Get up, let us go from here. But not without first singing and then fellowshipping. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we would pray for your help. We know that our Lord has gifted us with peace and that it's a peace that accomplishes everything that we've looked at today. And yet we need help to apply it. And so, Father, assist us by your Spirit to take the teaching of this portion of Scripture and to apply it to our lives. That in the midst of whatever difficulty we're currently experiencing, we would see that this truth is powerful to grant us incomprehensible peace to persevere in the midst of it. And so, Father, we thank you for this peace that is ours in Christ. We thank you for your goodness and grace. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.